Welcome to the Fabulously Keto podcast aimed at improving health, vitality and quality of life. Eating real food in a ketogenic lifestyle. I'm Jackie Fletcher and I'm based in the UK. And I'm Louise Reynolds, an Aussie currently based in Bangkok, Thailand. Each week we will be bringing you guests who share their stories and discuss a range of topics which we hope will improve your health and well-being. Many of the guests, like us, came to Keto for Weight Loss and have stayed for their well-being, numerous health benefits and because they are living their best lives. We hope you will be inspired to incorporate these ideas into your own health journey so that you can feel better than you ever have before. Thinking about starting keto? Take a listen to episode number two, What is Keto and How to Start? Welcome to the Fabulously Keto Podcast. This is episode 74. Yes, dear listeners, I'm back with Jackie because today we are interviewing Dr. Gary Fetke, who is, like myself, a fellow Australian. And Jackie, we need to update the intro because obviously I'm back in Australia. So, um, yes, dear listeners, we will get around to that. We need to let you settle into your job and home first. We'll do it. Busily unpacking everything. It's so stressful, Jackie. Thank you very much for um, yeah, just giving me some time and space. But it was lovely to catch up with yourself and Dr. Gary Fetke, who listeners will remember we interviewed his lovely wife, Belinda Fetke, in episode 58. Yeah, 58. Uh, last year. So you'll have to go back in our back catalogue to um, episode 58. So, um, like, like Belinda, as we said in, in the intro to Belinda, I had the, the great privilege of meeting Belinda and Gary when we were in Breckenridge, um, staying with the two keto dudes where they were presenting at the, um, low carb Breckenridge conference. And I reckon that was in, oh, cast my mind back, maybe 2017. So, yeah, it was really great to catch up with Gary. Our paths have crossed a couple of times at Low Carb Down Unders and, um, yeah, the conferences. So He was lovely. So the conversation as it flowed was really focusing on Gary's advocacy work. Um, so people who are not familiar with, with Gary and Belinda, obviously Belinda's work is focused around you know, really exposing those food politics and food agendas where, whereas, um, you know, Gary's working in a different space following, um, following, I suppose, you know, his high profile, um, run in with the Australian health regulator. And that was some years ago, but let's not sort of use that, you know, to cast what, um, what Gary is doing now moving forward in, in terms of his work, which is really, um, as you'll hear in this interview, um, you know, really about sort of focusing on food quality, um, fresh, local, seasonal, um, and really defining what is good food and his experience as being a orthopedic surgeon. Yeah. And he's, you know, he said in the interview, he, he doesn't really want to focus on the past and it's more about looking forward to the future. And I think he's really going to come into his own with this new diabetes putting diabetes into remission. 
Yeah, and he's in a really privileged position being an orthopaedic surgeon because obviously where he's, you know, in his practice has been so much about treating the end stages of of diabetes. And, you know, by focusing on those things that are controllable, such as food quality, you know, that he was really trying to put that spotlight on how we can prevent obviously the progression of this clearly sort of you know reversible um, condition. Mm. Do you want to tell us a bit about Gary? So Dr Gary Fetke is a medical doctor so MBBS. He's also a fellow of the Royal Australian College of Surgeons um, specializing in orthopedics. He's also a fellow of the Australian Orthopedic Association. So as an orthopedic surgeon uh, he is a vocal proponent of nutrition being a major component of prevention and management of modern disease. In 2014, he was targeted by the processed food industry for his opinion on the perils of excessive sugar consumption, culminating in being silenced by the medical board. 2018 saw a clearance of those charges with an apology from the board. In the process of that investigation, it became apparent that these issues were not just of the sugar reduction, but that of the recommendation of animal-based protein and healthy fats in a balanced diet. He has a broad understanding of the vested interest-shaped dietary guidelines. So let's hear from Dr. Gary Fetke. Welcome to the Fabulously Keto podcast. It's fabulous Dr. Gary Fetke, to have you here today with us. Good to see you both, ladies. I know you can, uh, everyone else is only hearing it, but I get to view you both. <laughs> and what a pleasant sight it is. We've got the rose amongst the thorns, or is it the thorns amongst the rose today? Well, anyway, now we normally start the podcast is, you know, where in the world are you? I'm in Launceston, Tasmania, little island on the bottom end of Australia but uh, still politically in the midst of uh, all of the Australian turmoil. <laughs> yes, we've, you know, being, being on the bottom of the world, we have sort of turned everything upside down, certainly in the last couple of weeks. Well, I actually but... like to think, I like to think the shape of Tasmania is a bit like a lifeboat at the bottom end there. We've already exited, so let's pull up the drawbridge and keep, keep away from the rest of the world. It's nice that you're in your little bubble and it's really lovely because Gary and I are in the same time zone, dear listeners. Yes, um, this is my first podcast since returning to, to Australia and it's really lovely that Jackie's in a different time zone. <laughs> yeah, you're getting your own back now. <laughs> I am and it's really lovely that um, Dr. Gary is a fellow Australian, so um it's really nice to sort of have the two, well, we've won the ashes, so everything else doesn't really matter, does it? I wasn't going to raise that with Jackie, but I like, would have liked to have seen it gone a little bit more than three days in Tasmania with the final ashes test. Yeah, there wasn't much of a competition, but, um, but that's, that's because we're so good. Jackie's mute. <laughs> <laughs> You're talking about sport. Sport just goes straight over my head. I have no idea. I did. Know this isn't that about did... sport. This is politics. This is I, the Ashes. It's cricket I Australia. Absolutely. I did know we'd lost the Ashes, but it's like, who cares? Well, no, <laughs> I no. I mean, it, it, you should actually care. Um, in that, oh, it must be about 
six or seven years ago, and I'm not that good on sporting dates, but Australia lost the Ashes 5-0 in England. <laughs> and the following, uh, Peter Bruckner was looking after the team at that time, and over the next six months, he converted a lot of them to low carb. They trimmed down, they got uh, more, you know, they, they nearly won the test series in India, but then uh, England came out to Australia that following season, that summer, so 12 months later, and they lost 5-0. Now, I can actually remember texting Peter in the midst of the, the Melbourne, Ashes, uh, Melbourne Ashes test and saying, please tell me Mitch Johnson has gone low-carb. He'd just taken eight wickets. So uh, low-carb keto did actually turn around the Australian cricket team. Yeah. Um, and uh, Peter, you know, that, that's part of Peter's journey. I don't know if you've caught up with Peter on, on the podcast. But, yeah, he was quite early on, um, yeah. So that therefore, by um, definition, the ashes is of incredible importance to you, Jackie, and I'm glad you're ah. now going to pay attention to it. Well, perhaps we should get Peter over here and coach the team then. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's open to it. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I mean, because Peter's already had his time in the UK when he was with the Liverpool, like the football club, so he's he's already had his contribution to um, in the UK. Sport, yeah. yeah, I know. But maybe... You know, he's been away for a long time. Maybe it's time for him to come back. Then he can he's watch his lovely Liverpool s- matches. That's right. But Peter's doing some really good work with his Sugar by Half and his other diabetes, um, you know, foundation and stuff. So that's, you know, his legacy now is obviously in Australian low-carb, um, you know, health, public health sort of campaigning is he's doing great guns. Yeah. And we, we're... Um... There's a new diabetes network group that we're setting up not uh, in sort of parallel to Peter at this point in time in that uh, James Mookie, who was our Australian of the Year in 2020, took our low-carb message uh, all the way to Canberra and the NHMRC, the Research Council. And um, James and Belinda and myself were doing a lot of work, still are, um, I think most of that time that he was Australian of the Year, we probably communicated every day, literally about... And James, um, a lovely fellow, totally naive, and he'll openly admit that when he opened up as Australian of the Year and he started start talking about the perils of sugar. And within a, days, within a day, he was being attacked by the, the whole food industry. Uh, all, you know, very much in exactly what happened to me you know, now, probably best part of 10 years ago. So... Uh, the long and the short of that, James has stood his ground. He's actually been a stalwart in this and taken the message into government circles, into the Diabetes Australia, and actually really challenged those those bodies. And only recently we've actually developed, well, he's been able to find some seed funding from a philanthropist to set up a group that are willing to advise and network all of us. And there's doctors on that group. There's actually... Um, uh, people involved in politics, in the food industry, and also journalists, all have no ties with the food industry nor with the pharmaceutical industry, as distinct from other advisory bodies that are advising us on diabetes management. So we're hoping to actually network and continue that message rather than actually hand out specific details, try and actually get people linking up who actually have the same aim here, which is to actually put diabetes, type 2 diabetes into remission. Mm. Because at this point in time, still virtually all of the material that comes out of diabetes foundations, whether or not it's Australia, UK, US, 
is not really t- really pushing that remission aspect. They're still about, okay, you're just going to really, to be fair, eat what you want and we'll chase it with medication. And, the, you know, the terms remission, reversal um, are virtually words which are only just coming into the vocabulary of these associations when, in fact, it should be the first line. They said, okay, this is type 2 diabetes is a condition which you are able to have total control over if you decide to do it. Yeah. rather than have poor control, chasing it with medication, following the standard therapy. So it's very exciting to be part of that new new group. So 2022, bring it on from that aspect. And, we, and Peter's team, Peter's group is actually not directly involved, but essentially we're networking with them. Right. And diabetes.co.uk, you know, it's all about creating networks and linking people up so that there's actually one voice that's coming out on this topic rather than disparate voices coming along and trying to bang the same, you know, bang the same drum from different areas. Yeah. And have you been in contact with the public health collaboration? I've got a, um, a uh, oh, the, yeah, the, uh, yes, um, right at the start of that I was, asked to be a little bit a part of it and come over and present, but the trouble is this thing called um, Australia-UK distance. But Sam felt, Sam's done a fabulous job of putting that together and most of the people who have been speaking at that, we've, we've met up at different you know, low-carb and keto events over the last 10 years. But, you know, life and travel's all been pretty restricted recently. And- yeah. yeah, yeah, it still is. And really, your role, what your your professional role as an orthopedic surgeon, really puts you on the front line of what was a tsunami of disease, and that's really where two. I think there's two parallel paths for you and your story. If the if the listeners weren't familiar with with your story, one in your professional capacity orthopaedic surgeon and your own health journey so why don't you sort of you know you can give us a bit of a cook's tour <laughs> you know around um, well, we, around the lifeboat yeah um, look I, i'm sort of bored by my own story i think it's more important to make history rather than rewrite it so um i mean i've said it before i was a fat kid i was always struggling with obesity and you know and i was always trying to outrun my diet and i was exercising and Blah, blah, blah. And, uh, you know, the story of a lot of people who are on that health journey, they've tried everything, they've tried this, that, and they've never tried medications. But I was thought I was doing the right thing and eating by that food pyramid. And, uh, and I was just getting sicker. And I was 20-odd kilos heavier than where I am now. I was pre-diabetic, hypertension, and um, got hit by a, a nasty pituitary tumour when I was 38. And... Um, the penny still didn't drop on that and sort of um, best part of 10 years later, I started understanding the role of sugar and carbs in that tumour cancer scenario. Not that going low carb and keto is going to cure cancer, but it has a role to play in the overall management. Mm. But hand in hand with that, I was an orthopaedic, I still am an orthopaedic surgeon, but I was looking after the diabetic foot complications here in northern Tasmania and most of them were finding their way into my clinic on a on a Friday afternoon, and and it was literally rotting flesh on a daily basis. But every Friday, you'd come in there, and there was rotting flesh on people who had poorly controlled diabetes. And when they'd come into hospital, the hospital was giving them, you know, three desserts per day, 
through lots of ice cream, giving them high carbohydrate diets. We had no control of their diabetes, no control of their infections. And you know, all of this sort of happened all you know in the one sort of time frame. Diabetes is out of control on my patients. I started looking at hospital food, I had my own health equation. Um, I came across uh, David Gillespie's book, uh, Sweet Poison. Um, after I was starting that whole looking at carbs and insulin model and, and uh, metformin was being mucked around with, with um, cancer management. And I always thought, you know, just in the most simplistic orthopaedic surgeon terms, I said, well, there's this work being done with metformin to reduce the amount of sugar in the blood amount of glucose, and that's improving cancer outcome. Why don't we just not eat sugar in the first place? Which is diabetes management. Nothing's changed there. And all of this sort of came together when I started looking at hospital food, and I'm going, actually, we're poisoning our patients. One of the, you know, I got, I got reported to the medical board on three occasions for advising my patients to not eat sugar and considering low carb. One of those times I got reported was for inappropriately reversing someone's type 2 diabetes. Oh, I cannot. And I'm not, I'm not kidding. Believe I mean, that. It, it, nobody can believe it, but that's what happened. Yeah, and, um, you know, and part of it was that I gave, a, I gave a presentation here at the national meeting of the hospital food industry. You know, you're not going to get a bigger forum for having a crack at them. And, um, you know, they were receptive to my talk, but my second slide was hospital food is crap and it's killing my patients. And it's a figure of speech, but guess what? APRA, the medical board, actually investigated that and looked at the hospital food. My wrote to the hospital, say, how many of my patients have actually died from eating hospital food? And the hospital said, well, none have actually officially died from eating the hospital food. So this is how ridiculous the system is. It was a figure of speech. You know, if you're setting a poor example over time, it is going to kill the patients. So patients with poorly controlled diabetes, they come to hospital and they think it's okay to eat ice cream three times a day. Yeah. You know, we, we've got to, you know, hospitals should be pillars of health and setting the example that, you know, they should be above reproach. But in fact, uh, you know, the, you know, the, the, the hospital food still is crap and it is still setting a terrible example. It, not, you know, you don't control patients' infections very well as related to diet when they're in hospital at the moment. We haven't for a long time. and still see that as a long, long pathway. So the hospital administration in their wisdom said to me, look, um, you know, we're not going to change anything. You've got to change the, change the food guidelines. And I said, okay, let's have a crack at it. So, you know, that's what we're, that's what we're doing now. You know, they're trying to work and we've been, uh, you know, working towards getting, you know, giving information to the NH and MRC. I've presented now to four Senate inquiries across a variety of topics. Um, we do need to change the dietary guidelines. They need to be moving away from processed food back to real food. Um, James Mookie took my – I've actually rewritten the dietary guidelines for the world in one sentence. Go on then. Which it, 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 I realise you know, it's, it's arrogant, Louise. Apologise. <laughs> um, but – uh, it's uh, a bit of it's um, eat fresh, local, seasonal, whole food based on your culture and environment, avoiding added sugar and processed food. Full stop. See, that's it. To me, it sums it up. But that's it. Sums it up, right? And there's no arrogance whatsoever. It's a because I had actually before before the interview, I 
remember vividly, I'm a visual learner, your presentation at Low Carb Denver, you know, and you had these beautiful colours, the fresh seasonal local, and the other thing about the about the seed oil. So that was my notes to myself pre pre homework. Um, it's clearly here, fresh seasonal local, and it's but- it's definitely culturally contextual. It's whole foods with no processing and no no added sugar. So in- no environment, that. the environment Absolutely. aspect is actually quite critical. Mm. Uh, because I've, what I've introduced is uh, latitude. Mm. So uh, it's if you're at um, because coming back to fructose metabolism and the byproducts of that, including small dense LDLs, uh, which become oxidized, that whole process of cleaning up that in the subendothelial layer of the blood vessels is all under the influence of vitamin D. Mm. So you can get away with having a higher, let's say, fruit diet, you know, again, it's talking seasonal fruit, if you're exposed to sunlight. So most fruit in a temperate climate in Tasmania becomes available at this time of the year. You know, it's the end of summer, you know, summer moving into autumn. And, yes, I've got raspberries growing in the, in the, in the garden and I've got strawberries and we've got tomatoes coming. What's fascinating about the raspberry and the strawberries, I have not had a strawberry yet this year because my grandchildren get in there and raid it every day that they turn <laughs> up here. But I'm sort of, I'm okay with that because they, there's plenty of sunlight. Our vitamin D levels are much greater at this point in time of the year. And maybe that's the way we were evolved to, be, to have all this stuff. We shouldn't be having copious amounts of sugar all year round and certainly shouldn't be having it in the winter periods when our vitamin D level exposure is going to be down. Yeah, that's interesting, linking it to vitamin D. Absolutely. And I think me being the being the ginger ninja who actually really, really is meant for a northern hemisphere climate, who has actually just spent time in a different latitude with loads of fresh fruit and vitamin D or lots of sunlight. And you can see there, obviously, See, with the, the genetics of, you know, certainly in, in the tropics and Southeast Asia, that obviously there's very, that people that eat a lot of carb heavy, so traditionally, you know, well, rice was introduced, mm. but the fruits and that sort of stuff. And even though there's, there is changing, changing body shapes to be more obese than what it was even 10 years ago when I was last in, in Thailand, but they have the capacity to cope with, obviously, as you said, the the fresh local seasonal fruits, and um, you know. But it's offset by other other types of proteins and, and very high sort of vegetable intakes. But my in my back garden in Australia is apricot trees, and you know that when it's fresh, seasonal, local, you know that it ripes only for three weeks. It's just short, sharp. And, you know, at a particular season, it's not, as you said, it's not all year round. It's not in the supermarket all year round mm. when it's out of season. It's no longer, you know, it's local. It's imported. It's totally different. There's a totally different way that we've well, changed our food supply. Uh, you know, I've talked about in my fruit talks and the carb talks mm. about that, that fresh fruit is there for us as animals stuff our faces with it so we yep. get fat for winter hibernation. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, if you've got that apricot tree outside and it's not enclosed and it's not netted, 
then that tree is pretty well stripped bare. It is by, by the, the local by the, possums the local parrot, and the birds. Birds. One night or one day before the fruit ripens on the tree for you. Yep. So that's yeah, it was a, it was and a that's competition. the way we should we <laughs> should as animals be out there fighting with those birds and the possums. And that's <laughs> and that's what is meant to happen in nature. And that you've got to lose a lot of energy to actually get your share of that fruit so you get fat for winter. Yeah. Climb that tree. It was, it was so funny because you said about stuffing my face because I would actually run down to the bottom of the garden and see where the ripest, you know, couple of ones and it was just like, I'm just going to have a couple. And it was, they were so sweet and juicy. But you're right, all the parrots up the top were, were um, you know, grabbing. Well, the food. other thing about the fruit at that point in time in the year is it gets bright and shiny. It's red, orange, yellows, yeah, but it's bright and shiny. It gets large and engorged to attract you to eat it. You know, so, it's actually in the fruit's interest for you to eat it. So that you're because, dispersing the seeds. So you can disperse the seeds. So it's actually going through a whole lot of advertising as well. It's like it's no difference from the, the food industry advertising stuff in shiny packages or natural colours to attract us to it. Fruit is actually I – mean, it took me a little while to get my head around that, but what? why does fruit – get bright, shiny, and so sweet so it can be eaten. Well, it's actually – it's that fruit's survival mechanism is actually to be eaten and so the seed can be dispersed. Unfortunately, the fruit – you know, most fruit hasn't worked out that the vast majority of humans disperse their seed into a porcelain bowl at the moment. <laughs> so yeah. it, it's not that effective. But, you know, that, that's what – you know, if, once you recognise that, that's the life cycle of food and fruit and our and ourselves. And I, I keep saying we're just animals. We've got the same, effectively the same metabolism as most animals on the planet. Yeah. You know, it's all the Krebs cycle, and you know, with the Krebs cycle, it involves, um, uh, you know, the different inputs of you know, protein, fats, and and carbs. We're incredibly simple creatures. We're, we're just making it complicated. Yeah. And also, you know, I don't know about where you are, but here it's not so much on – there's no focus on the um, local and seasonal. So we have lots of um, tropical fruits, uh, avocados, all these things that are being travelled all around the world, halfway around the world, to bring it to us. Well. Perhaps if we focused on local and seasonal, we wouldn't need to so much transport. We wouldn't need so many flying of fruits and vegetables. Oh, that, um, beca that becomes, I don't know if you've seen any of those images about the food miles associated with our, our fruit and vegetable in, as distinct from animal, animal, um, uh, animal foods. And it is just horrendous. About and so therefore, you know what you you know one of those hats I wear is is um, I'm by being low carb, I've become pro meat, and that was actually one of the reasons I got targeted. It didn't. It took me. It took us years to work that out. And that was a lot. A lot of Belinda's research is that if we're actually talking about low carb, then we're actually avoiding the cereals, the grains, the fruits in in significant amounts the breads and as a result of that you're actually left with animal-based product yeah particularly if you're at tip to tail so i've actually now i think unpaid but i'm a 
and officially a red meat ambassador for the Meat and Livestock Australia. That was after a fairly controversial talk I gave last year. They've, they've interviewed me a few times. But we, you know, and eating tip to tail on an animal respectfully completes all of your nutritional requirements. And you can find animals fresh locally and seasonally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And guess what? They, they're low in carbohydrates. They've got good amounts of protein and they've got healthy fats in them. And vitamins. And vitamins and micronutrients. So we, we, those, agri those cultures that actually eat tip to tail uh, have a complete nutritional profile. Yeah. It's interesting. You actually need less vitamin C if you're not having carbohydrate. Yep. Yeah, so, I remember Amber Amber O'Hearn sort of talking about that because obviously the, those sorts of recommended daily sort of allowances for, you know, some some vitamins is based on obviously, you know, lowering your meats and upping your grains. But where, you know, her being a carnivore, um, is basically, you know, there's, well, where do you get your vitamin C? Well, I don't need it when, um, when I'm eating, as you said, tip to tail. Well, vitamin C is involved in um, the fructose breakdown into uric acid. Uh, it happens at the liver level. And if you actually don't have a major fructose load, you don't need as much vitamin C. And it, it, make, it makes it interesting here we're talking, um, you know, between Australia and what's that other place, the United Kingdom? Yeah, somewhere yeah. like that, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, we, we were discovered officially by the Europe, or not, uh, Captain James Cook uh, was known for, you know, not finding Australia. The Dutch had found us a little bit beforehand, and obviously with all respect to our, our Indigenous po population of here before us. But Cook was famous for finding Australia, but Cook's also famous for introducing limes to prevent scurvy. So he became a great navigator and a great explorer because as a European, he was able to actually travel around the world and find all that stuff. But if you think back to what the sailors were eating back in the 1700s, they would have been eating gruel. Yeah. Their standard fare because you know the ships were you know infested with rats and the rats were eating the grain and the gruel was being fed to the sailors, so they would have had a reasonably high carbohydrate diet. When you compare that to the Inuits and the northern Scandinavian explorers and sailors, they didn't have. So they they they, they explored without the problems of. They're sure they didn't come around to the whole, the West Indies and the East Indies, but. It's just fascinating. I'd love to go back into history and actually see exactly what those sailors were actually eating. You can go to the manifests and see that there was a fair amount of grain in their diet. But if they didn't have the grain, Cook might have not needed the limes to prevent the scurvy. Just you know, It's fascinating going back and looking at history. Yeah, that's really interesting because they wouldn't have had any fridges to keep meat. They wouldn't, you know, they would. No. it would have just got off. So they would have needed things that uh, survived. The journey, and you know, they, you know, they managed, you know, when they were um, stranded and uh, shipwrecked, to actually survive on eating the fish locally, which goes back to evolutionary you know, uh, principles that a majority of us appear to have evolved around the sea. Yes, you know, on the shorelines, and that's where we would have been able to get access to our 
our fish and then you know moved inland after that as we developed our hunting skills. Yeah. I'm fascinated by that side of evolutionary science, evolutionary nutrition, um, and how we our migration policies. And, you know, 2022, it's totally screwed up because, you know, food miles are all over the place. We've got most people have no idea where food comes from, let alone how to prepare it. Yeah. And that, that, that's all the tragedies. And I, I don't know how much of that's reversible. It's reversible well, it, for those that choose it. Yeah, and, who and find it's, it. it's interesting when you're sort of talking about that ancestral sort of thing and what came to mind when, you when you know, Jackie was saying about the food, like UK being, you know, imported, you know, and that was obviously part of the, the good things about the EU. Then there was obviously lots of, lots of trade. What is fresh, seasonal, local for the UK really brings to mind, you know, like starchy carbohydrates, you know, like potatoes, when you're thinking about, you know, what would be some of the more ancestral foods in terms of, Vegetables, but, but, but apart potato, from potatoes meat. were introduced from South America, so the, 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 it's not a it's not a staple of, of Europe. The veg, the potato comes from South America originally. Someone's actually tracked, and I'm trying to find a reference to it, but it, it gave me absolute certainty. He said you can track osteoarthritis by the migration of the potato. Really? Now, I, there's a talk that I've just done. It's on YouTube, um, uh, carbohydrates, the dose is the poison. And I delve into that whole issue of uh, when you eat carbohydrates, glucose provokes an insulin response. And uh, in 2020, there's a, a great article that came out of China. So not everything in bad came out of China in 2020. <laughs> and it was really the first biochemical link between insulin and inflammation and osteoarthritis. And uh, we know that insulin, when, when you eat carbohydrates, your body produces insulin and it will store it as fat. It was also a growth hormone in cancer. So I'm a, I'm a great believer in reducing your insulin load upon your body and cancer, not to stop cancer, but to slow it all down, hopefully. No guarantees, but it just makes basic sense. But the third arm of insulin was that it's actually inflammatory. It provokes a whole inflammatory cascade and particularly with osteoarthritis and that's what the china china paper was i can't remember the xiau i think but it's on in my carb talk and i've seen that in my clinical practice over and over and over people with advanced you know minor osteoarthritis but advanced osteoarthritis particularly of the knee where they adopt a low carb diet keto they reduce their insulin and within a week or two they've halved their symptoms mm. or, or become asymptomatic and i know i had one week where i saw eight or well, there were eight patients that returned that i'd seen six to eight weeks before and they all had bare bone osteoarthritis in their knee and they all were heading for a knee replacement if they had seen any of my colleagues they would have had knee replacements and eight of them came in and said i have no pain they still had a lousy looking x-ray. They still had an unstable the knee. They didn't, they, their pain had improved. I, I know that's true because I put it on Twitter. So therefore yeah, it's got to be true. But <laughs> the, the, honest to goodness, it actually, they just came in. And so it, once you see it, and, I, and I'm quoting, you know, once you see it, you can't unsee it. Can't unsee mm. it. So you just keep, look, just why don't you try it? You, like, 
One was a physio from the hospital, slim lady, didn't need to lose any weight. Well, she'd just retired and she said, I know I want to look at every conservative option rather than have a knee replacement. Like physiotherapists know that knee replacements are hard work. So she was desperate. And so, you know, I said, well, the only other thing you can try is low carb keto if you want to don't, don't, don't do the drugs and everything. Anyway, she rolled up eight weeks later uh, the, you know, and she gave it a test the weekend before coming to see me because she said, actually, you know, she didn't have any pain, but she climbed up to the top of Cradle Mountain, which is, you know, for those who haven't been to Tasmania, it's got a pretty solid old hike. four to five mm-hmm. hour walk up, up and down up to the top of the mountain. So that's a woman who was heading for a knee replacement with constant night pain, eight weeks later, climbs Cradle Mountain. And again, it's just a one-off story, but when you keep seeing it week in and week out, but what the China paper did was actually show a mechanism and it wasn't about weight loss and it wasn't about calorie control. It was actually about reducing insulin. And the great thing about that China paper was it actually missed the boat. At the end of it, the conclusion was there's a clear direct linear relationship between insulin secretion and inflammation and inflammatory markers and maybe we should target insulin in the management of osteoarthritis looking at drug therapies when the obvious answer was don't eat carbs therefore you will reduce your insulin only so as often th- 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 there was no vested interest in it you know they, they, they just clearly in the conclusion missed the boat they missed the most obvious thing which was don't eat the carbs reduce your insulin yourself yeah it just seems like, does it feel to you like you're pushing a rock, a boulder up the hill, up your... No, 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 no I'm just really naive. The... <laughs> and optimistic. <laughs> oh, no, I, I don't know if I'm optimistic. I'm, I'm, I suffer from hyper-pragmatism. You know, I could just... It, it, this is what it is. And I, it, I can say, you know, I've said it to patients, I've said, this is, these are, this is the biochemistry. I'm not making this stuff up. You know, what's written on the packet, that's called advertising, that's made up. You know, the food guidelines, it's just made up. Here's the biochemistry. The biochemistry is not arguable. You know, association evidence is not, you know, well, it's interesting, but that work. So most of our dietary guidelines have been based on association evidence. Yeah. Which has been written by the food industry or, you know, as per Belinda's work, written by religious bias towards a vegan vegetarian lifestyle now with massive corporate you know money behind it and the research that's being done to prove that a plant-based diet is healthier i mean there's enormous amounts of money this is billion billion dollar industries and i've managed to upset them by by saying well actually no it's just all you know bs or however that comes across on a podcast um so I am naive because, you know, 10 years ago, 10, 12 years ago, I started looking at all this fructose, sugar stuff, glucose, diabetes, and I said to Belinda, this is so flaming obvious, even an orthopaedic surgeon can work this out. <laughs> and you can put, we can put type 2 diabetes into remission and improve weight control and inflammation and blah, blah, blah. This will all be over in six months. Yeah. Right? <laughs> now... I'm fairly certain John Yudkin thought the same thing at some point in time. Um, and I've, this is, as it turns out, when you look back in history, you know, I'm just reinventing the wheel. You know, my bit was maybe 
I've described inflammation and I've put the combination of fructose, refined carbohydrate and the seed oils together and come up with a model of inflammation. I was very excited when we came, when I was just putting jigsaws together and that came together on an Easter weekend in 2014. And, and I was silly enough to put that on the internet and then the attacks came. Mm. I said, it's only a theory, it's a hypothesis. But you as an individual can actually take the sugars out of your diet. You can take the refined carbohydrate diet out of your diet. You can take the seed oils out of your diet and see what happens. So that was at a time frame that the word keto, I didn't even know. Mm. Yeah, that whole keto. So we've come a long, long way in the last 10 years. When I started talking about sugar, everyone looked at me as I was completely nuts. Yeah. You know, and so let alone the carbs and the seed oils because the hospitals are still feeding people margarine. So naive, yes, I'll admit to that. Optimistic. Um, I'm optimistic for the individual to take the information on board and make changes. I'm not so optimistic for the system to admit that maybe they got it wrong for 40 or 50 years. Yeah. I, and I don't I think they're the, going to admit that. No, but I used to be the cake judge at the hospital. You know, <laughs> like I, I wouldn't take kids' plasters off unless they brought me a chocolate cake. Uh, and so I, I admit it, I got it wrong. I got it wrong big time. We've apologised to the to my patients. I've apologised to our children that I'd bring really, really good chocolate cakes home every week because I accepted them as bribery. <laughs> uh, and uh, but I got it wrong. But, you know, I, 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 so it's, A, it was empowering for me to admit that I got it wrong. But as time's gone on, I still can't work out why the medical profession can't just say, oops, sorry, got it wrong. Let alone, you know, those, those bodies that, you know, are developing guidelines. And that's, that's why James Mookie, myself and the others in the group, are, you know, and Belinda's part of that. She's actually there as a researcher to try and work out other people's vested interests. So when someone comes out with a comment which seems out of left field, and it does, you know, in the high, and I'm talking in nutritional circles at this point in time, it doesn't take long to find out that they've got a tie with the food industry or the pharmaceutical industry or multiple ties, particularly in the region of field of diabetes. So di you know, diabetes here in Australia, every person on the expert advisory committee has vested interests with the pharmaceutical industry. Yeah. Like not, not none of them, not one of them, but every one of them. So, so, you know, who's going to, you know, go out of their way to pull the, the card out from underneath themselves? No, because that's paying for their food, their but, house, their, well, their life. Well, I think it's also, it, it also is for their egos. It's really, really hard to say, oops, I might have got that wrong. It's a generational thing. And the great thing about the internet and YouTube and those talks is that they can actually get out to a wider audience. So sure, I understand there's a degree of censorship going out there at this point in time. And I suspect censorship is actually going to increase in the next four or five. I think it certainly will increase by 10 years. So you met the message out here of low carb, which is anti-corporate food, you know, fresh local seasonal, you know, again, is anti-corporate. And so therefore it's critical to get that message out there today because no. tomorrow it's censored. Yeah. 
Uh, and so I think we do have a window of opportunity, and that's why you know we're chatting today. Let's just keep that message going. How optimistic am I? Well, you know, you've each made your own decisions on this, and you, now you're on that journey. And the podcast is going out to another person and another person, and if they listen and they go, okay, I'll give that a try. And once once you give it a try and start learning more and more about it. Um, David Gillespie's book, Sweet Poison, again, that was one of those early books in my journey. I went, ah, oh, a lawyer couldn't have got this one worked out. And I know David quite well now. And I said, I'm going to try and prove him wrong. Couldn't. That I couldn't prove him wrong. And in the midst of it, I gave up sugar and lost eight kilos. And I went, hang on, hang on, this is not right. I'm a sugar addict. This couldn't possibly be this much of a driver of my eating habits my behavior and my, my weight and my health. But guess what? It is. And so you know, we're all we're all primed to be sugar addicts. We're all primed to be possums and birds looking for Louise's apricot tree. Yeah. That's right. But only but in you, August and September, not all year oh, round. In, well, the, in, the, in the northern hemisphere. So oh, sorry, yeah, other way for you. Yeah, so other way mm. for us. And it's normally at this time of year in the bottom of the garden you'd find me down down there sort of you know with my my cheeks full of you know juicy apricots but Gary you were saying about paying it forward and really you know your work Belinda's work and you were telling us off air how you inspired two other people one who paid it forward who said you know he got the combination right so when you pay it forward you actually want to inspire two people and those two people was Richard Morris and obviously Carl Franklin, the two keto do. So it's all all began with you. Well, according to Richard, so you know, you know trust him or not. <laughs> um, but I mean, that, that, I was doing a chat with him. That was I can remember that that was twenty oh, twenty seventeen, I think, when I gave the talk at CrossFit, which was the first presentation of Belinda's work. And um, I said to her, I, 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 "I'm not going to let you give this talk out. I will take this one." Uh, her work, we, we'd actually been, she'd been doing it for two or three years. We used to have conversations in the shower with the ter- shower turned on just so, because literally this is multi-billion dollar industries, which we were about to, to, you know, have a crack at. And, um, we were on our way to, uh, that talk in the U S and Greg Glassman, who was the, he owns, well, CrossFit. And he asked Tim Noakes and myself to come and give talks. And I, I said to Greg, do you want, do you want something a bit um, uh, controversial? I said, bring it on. If you know, if, if anyone's ever met Greg, that's you know exactly what he wanted. Um, and when I caught up with him, he actually had three corporate lawyers there to actually listen to the talk. It was in front of a thousand people. I can still remember Greg in the front row, Tim Noakes in the front row, grinning from ear to ear because he knew where it was going to go. Belinda was sitting there with a going, oops, he's going to go there. He's going to go there. And so we're in the Midwest of the US, thousand people, four hours drive from low carb, uh, from Battle Creek, Michigan, which is the origin of the Seventh Day Adventist Church. And I went over Niagara Falls and started talking about religion in the Midwest of the US. And half a dozen people got up, walked out. And I just kept on going. That, but it was, you know, that was the first foray into putting Belinda's work out there. And you know, I've got to say, we didn't. Um, I rang up. I don't know if you know Zoe Harker, but you didn't know Zoe. 
and Zoe is a, Zoe and her husband Andy are dear friends. And I rang Zoe up and I said, "Do you mind if I, we come and visit?" You know, this is from Tasmania to Wales, and she said, "Yeah, no, come across you and Belinda. It'll be she hadn't met Belinda at that time." Um, and I said, "We just want to talk to you about something." And she said, "What do you want to talk about?" I said, "No, we I can't tell you right now. We just want to fly to Wales and." So we had five days with Zoe. Marie Casorbus flew in from Cape Town. Uh, a couple of others came down from around the UK. Anyway, for five days we sat there, and five of us, we and Belinda and I, just told them the story. I said, "Are we completely nuts? Have we got this completely and utterly wrong, or is this enormous?" Influenced by a religious organisation shaping the dietary guidelines in the world, and by inference, shaping this whole plant-based agenda, and shaping our poor metabolic health. Anyway, it was, it, it's almost a story which is too fantastic, too fantastical. But at the end of it, they said, "Look, you're absolutely right. Just go for it." So it it was, it's fabulous in this low carb community. That you can actually go along, literally cross international boundaries, get welcomed into. We've had people come and stay with us here in Tasmania. That's not enc- encouraging your entire podcast. People to you know come along and just <laughs> join visit you. Us in I was thinking, love on your doorstep. Yep. I was thinking, oh, um, maybe I'll come, but they won't let me in anyway. So no, no. <laughs> there you well, go. Um, Doug Reynolds rang up one time and said, "Can I pop down? Who started Low Carb USA?" and uh, and they came and visited, and they spent three days with us. And, and they hadn't heard the story. And so, the trouble is, most people who spend more than a day with us never recover from it, because it, it's been, it's been engrossing. Sure, the biochemistry is interesting. The health benefits are fascinating, and 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 it's a choice for multiple people. But the historical perspective of how on earth we've gotten into this mess, that it's been it's been a really interesting journey and that's yeah. that's belinda's work to actually just uncover like lots of people blame ansel keys for our food guidelines and that whole story about him and having a crack at john yard kind of moving us down that high carbon this pathway and the diet cholesterol hypothesis but you've got to work out who invent who influenced keys and how did he get to those beliefs and who gave what was involved in the politics and the funding of his research and all of that stuff and it, it, that period from 1910 to 1940 was fascinating with the amount of money moving around by the already the processed food industry but then you've got to work out where they got their ideas from and you go back to john harvey kellogg and then that's you know that's everyone can go and refer to belinda's podcast i'm pretty certain yeah. you covered a fair amount of that there yeah that's yeah, episode 58 and and I remember hearing Belinda talk uh, several mm. years ago, and I was just amazed, dumbfounded. It was like it, it's just stuck with me so much. Um, so yeah, she did a good job well, as of I convincing say, for, me. Like she'd come, I'd come home from work, and she'd say, "Look what I found out today! Look what I found out today!" I said, "Because I struggled," and and she'd sort of. Um, a repository of knowledge. So when I gave that, low, that talk at um, CrossFit, the central role of nutrition and everything, I said to her, and I do love her dearly, I, you know, very, very, I said, I don't trust you. <laughs> I am now going to do that research myself 
and find exactly what you've found. Don't give me any references. I'm going to start from scratch from it again. Um, and so, and that's what we did again with Zoe and Andy Marika. We just said, go, go looking now. But we literally opened up Pandora's box and it's all there. It's not as though they're hiding it. In 2019, they published an article in a journal called Religion, literally acknowledging everything that we've been talking about. They have been influencing the dietary guidelines. They're very proud of it. Mm. And they've got a business model that matches it all up. They've, I mean, you've got to be, they've done a fabulous job of promoting a product and a plant-based agenda based on a religious ideology for Christ to return. Yeah. And they've, they've done it brilliantly. But, yeah. you know, that in here in Australia, they're not paying taxes. They own... Uh, uh, hospitals, their property, uh, hospitals... Business, schools. They're the second biggest educator in the world after the Catholic Mm. Church. Uh, They're owning hospitals, they're owning universities, they're owning owning high schools, primary schools, and they're pushing that whole vegan agenda. You know, into into the whole Polynesian, that whole Blue Pacific, major, major influence. There are four prime ministers in the Polynesian countries are Seventh-day Adventists. And there's a push to actually push, to, to move... Uh, the island nations into having a more grain and cereal-based uh, diet. They were already totally out of control with diabetes, obesity, insulin resistance, and yet here we've got this enormous push to make them even worse. Yeah. I think just Belinda, Belinda told us that on the podcast, and I'm thinking when we're talking, of, as you said, about the fresh seasonal local, you know, culturally contexted food, but why would you want to do that? You know, as you said, critically, when, say, Pacific Islanders are, you know, eating fish or pork or yams or coconut, and these are the things that they're wanting them to to move from their traditional diet. Look what happened to our First Nations when we introduced, we, you know, when they were colonised and sugar and flour. It just, mm. just decimates, decimates the health of a, of a population. It's not made for that kind of food. It- Again, this is now taking latitude into the equation. The further east you go across the Pacific, the more insulin uh, resistant the population are, which sort of makes sense because of the migratory path- path- pathways that originally they, the, the more you're able to store fat, the further you could actually raft across the Pacific. Mm. And so now we're actually introducing that we proverbially as um, a population are exporting into that environment. I've, I've done foreign aid, particularly in Vanuatu. It's absolute joy to do. But if you actually go around Vila in the main island, you can see that processed food starting yep. to have an effect, yep. whereas the, the, the outer islands, that they don't. Mm. Uh, and Western A. Price noticed this as well when he was travelling, that if he were, if he was in populations that were eating locally and as they'd always eaten they were fine a few miles up the road where there was a western influence they were starting to see dental caries and other western diseases disease of cult civilization wherever we've introduced western diet whatever you know that the the perils of that then we've introduced cancer you know that's been well documented in africa it's been documented in in the Inuits as well. 
we've introduced. There's I've seen it quoted that the Melanesian Islands um, it wasn't until they introduced uh, grains and cereals that they didn't have pimples on their teenagers. Yeah, and you know acne acne is really an insulin uh, resistant state as well. I, yeah. I, I, and ingrown toenails. There you are, infected ingrown toenails on teenagers. This is an observation. I had, um, you know, young, mostly blokes who can't get young boys that come in or teenagers with horrible pustular toes. Um, I can remember a mother just thanking me one day. She, and I, all this kid was having, you know, ten wheat picks a day. I don't mind mentioning a sanitarium product so we can actually bag it out a bit. Um, anyway, he was just having this wheat picks and lots and lots of carbs. And he had horrible fungating infected toenails. His mother was washing the sheets every day. And I said, look, before we're going to do anything, I don't want to give you antibiotics. I just want you to cut your sugar and carbs down. Just give it a crack for me for two weeks and see how you go. Two weeks later, the infections had largely settled and his mother hadn't washed his sheets in a week. Mm. She needed to wash them for other reasons, but yeah, it was teenage males. But <laughs> teenage the, the, boys, the, I know. who. <laughs> The pus pouring out of his feet just literally stopped with a dietary intervention. And again, once you see it, you can't unsee it. How, yeah. how would you, you just? So therefore, you know, and and that's it's a different segue into into different topics. My office, um, I had lots of segues into that discussion, and one of them you'll like, Jackie, is that um, you'd sit on my examination couch. And directly over my shoulder is a portrait of the Queen. <laughs> and in Australia, you can actually go along to um, your local federal member of parliament and ask for the portrait of the Queen because we're still part of the Commonwealth. Your federal member has to give you a, a supply you with a free portrait of the Queen. I went down to our federal member and said, "I like my portrait of the Queen." They said, "What are you talking about, Doctor Fig?" I said. Well, you're supposed to have one here for me to actually put up if I want because we're part of the Commonwealth. And they came back about 10 minutes later. Which is, they said, would you like the one in the blue dress or the green dress? <laughs> anyway, which, so... Which what, did you choose? I went for the green dress. She's gorgeous. <laughs> uh, it's a few years old, but she's 90, 97 now. But anyway, long and short of it, about four or five years ago, she came out, the information came out that she's a low carber. And so, therefore, that was a – she doesn't eat anything That surprises white. me. Well, no, no, she, it's she, true. It's no, true. No, she I doesn't don't. eat potatoes. No, she doesn't, she doesn't I eat potatoes. I didn't know that. I didn't know so that. So she eats fresh, local, seasonal. Seasonal. And she's a, a relative, you know, low carber and avoids the yep. white stuff. stuff. And yep. so, therefore, over my shoulder, I, you know, it's a segue into the person that needs to have that discussion. I sort of, sort of say – Who's that picture? You know what I said. What's that woman famous for? And I'll always go. She's the queen. So no, so, no, something she's more famous for than being the queen. I said she's a low carber. Maybe you should. I, I say, look, she's ninety-seven. She's in pretty good nick. But, and they, you know, you know her secret. I say, well, she's low carber. That, that, it's, I, knew, I mean, that's a, yeah, I knew that. Ah, I didn't a, know that. A, a little segue there is that royalty and those people with power have had the crown land that they can hunt on. Yeah. And the commons are for the commoner. So for the commoner, they, they can farm it for the grains and the cereals. And so one of the topics we've, you know, Belinda and I have been exploring for a while now is whoever controls the protein controls the people. So if you actually have historically control of 
the protein, then you control the people. So that's the, that's the benefits of having the crown land. Commoners are not allowed on the crown land. Um, Marie Antoinette famously let them eat cake is actually referring to the food aspect. And nowadays, this whole plant-based agenda is about finding alternate protein sources which are nutritionally incomplete. But the advantage of the pea proteins, the soy proteins, is that they have shelf life and they're transportable. Yeah. And so this whole anti-meat rhetoric is actually got it. There's, there's, a, there's part of that is this agenda of controlling the protein source. If you control protein for people and you demonize the meat, then you've got the power. So wow. the advantage of plant-based proteins, although they're not, again, not complete, and they need to be supplemented, is that they actually have that, that profitability and shelf life, which you don't get with the, the, the animal-based right. foods. Yeah. Unless it's no, spam. I, look, I, I, my mum died when I was a teenager and, you know, when you're about 18 and you're thinking about leaving home, well, my father said, actually, by the way, I'm going to Queensland now. And he left myself and my sister um, to finish, to get through university, her finished school. He said, here's a small sum of money. It's all he could afford. So we actually had uh, one can of Spam per week between the two of us. That oh, was gosh, our meat wow. intake. Oh, my God. Um, so I do respect Spam. And I, I bought a can of it some years ago with it, just to let the kids know that things may not mm. always be quite as easy as it was terrible yeah but that's why i got fed by lots of people like belinda's mum is just fabulous she she fed me through university and a couple of other adopted mothers so, so gary's here how do you know the, the refrigerator is open <laughs> <laughs> so gary are you still practicing as an orthopedic surgeon well, as we talked about beforehand, I had some surgery a few months ago and I've still got some double vision. So, uh, I've, Probably not uh, a good thing at the moment. No, look, it's improving, apart from when I was backing the, the ute around with a trailer and Belinda was giving me some guidance and I still have double vision on backing around. But my golf's improving and um, the double vision's definitely improving. I'm a bit concerned about my accountant. I might as well bag him out whilst we've got a chance. I said, I've got double vision. And he's quite a good golfer. And I said, and he said, look, it's quite simple. Just hit the middle ball. <laughs> now have a think about that, right? My accountant doesn't know the difference between two and three. So, <laughs> so I've, I've told him I'm a bit concerned about his ability to cognitive, but I don't think he's low carving enough. Did you did you work out if it was the left one or the right one that you needed to hit? I had to hit the, I had to hit the left one. Ah, there you go. And you had a good round. Oh no! I've got. I'm back to the one vision now. Oh, okay. Let's go. Let's go. Paul Mason. Uh, we we're chatting about it. He actually, we, he, and we we're talking about uh, brain plasticity, and uh, George Reed sort of talked about this as well. That whole role of low carb keto actually means that you've probably got a bit more plasticity for your brain to actually recover from things like that. Yeah. So nerves probably do better in a ketogenic state. Difficult to prove, but look, um, the people looking after me advise saying, "Look, your your recovery is going along fabulously." Yeah. So excellent. And what's in store for twenty twenty two for you? The well, I want to get my golf handicap down. <laughs> That's the priorities. I like that. Um, the we've we're definitely doing the diabetes network. 
Uh, I'm on a couple of small uh, groups advising interested members of parliament regarding COVID. Um, we didn't really touch base about that today, but I'm concerned that I've come up with a list of 37 things that we should be considering around COVID. And, um, and one of them's, you know, diet and, and lifestyle yeah. and vitamin D, all of those things. Uh, just you know, in the last couple of weeks, there's been a couple of articles, uh, one that was mentioned in New England Journal of Medicine about the fact of the benefits of bariatric surgery on COVID outcomes. And I'm going, oh, hang on, okay, that if, if we know that bariatric surgery can improve metabolic syndrome and it can improve diabetes and can improve weight, but so can a ketogenic diet at, at, without the cost. And so why, not, why aren't we talking about lifestyle interventions in the management of you know, a pandemic? And, that, you know, that, that's, and you know, you've gotten emails from me. You know, at the bottom of my emails is always that science evolves by being challenged, not by being followed. Yeah. So that's the scientific method. That's what we have to all do every single day as scientists, as clinicians, as, as in life. We should not take for granted what's actually there and what we're being told. So I'm, I'm incredibly concerned that, si that debate is being silenced. And that's my take on it. So I'm not saying whether or not I'm pro this or anti that. I'm just saying that debate should continue on because it's clearly changing in different variants. And that's where I'm, I'm quite happy to have this advisory role at the moment. I feel, I feel so it's, I'm not too controversial. I'm it's safe ground. I've never said I'm an epidemiologist. I'm certainly not a vaccine uh, expert, but I do think we should be able to debate topics freely in medicine, and that's not being allowed at this point. And it's very reminiscent of exactly what's happened in low carb to me. That's why I've been asked to be involved, because very clearly our hospital food is still atrocious when we've now got 10 years of great data saying we should be reducing the amount of processed food in our diet. Yes. Or 20 years of data, but really, really strong data. And until we actually change dietary guidelines, then it should always be questioned. So that's 2022. Um, we've, got, um, we've got grandchildren. It's a bit of fun. We're an enormous amount of fun. What we're doing now is I suppose we're going to probably do more podcasts and more support of those people who are working it out for themselves. Um, you know, it's a great joy mentoring Paul Mason for, you know, over the years. Well, he's off and running now. And, um, you know, even you know, Peter Brooknock, I mean, Rod Taylor, you probably know Rod who started Rod right Hub down yeah. under. I was, we were in the back of a taxi a couple of years ago and I said, Rod, you know, five years' time, ten years' time, we'll just be a couple of old codgers and everyone will have forgotten who we are. But the joy is we know that, you know, we were there in the early days of this. The two keto dudes, for instance, you know, how far Richard and Carl have taken their message. And other, we're contacted all the time. We go, Belinda's, um, you know, the, the cat's out of the bag with her research now. Uh, she, I keep saying, put it in a book. She and Nina Tycholtz are working yeah. on that at this yeah. point in time. That's great. Yeah. Great to hear. Fantastic. You need, you need to get it out before they bump you out. both off. They well, might get rid funny. of you. Last time we caught up with Nina, we caught up for brunch in New York and um, it was about 10 o'clock and anyway, they kicked us out of the restaurant at about 9 o'clock at night. 
<laughs> we had an extended brunch and then we had to order lunch and then we had to order something else and we thought and then so um yeah belinda and nina get along with the house on fire so that's um, that that makes my heart sing that she's getting finally getting that sort of published and that's really where oh, you know the, there's a the big, advocacy work she's done fantastic don't wait don't wait for that to happen overnight okay no, but all oh, good things take, you know, good things well, take, Nina like Nina cheese, took, cheese takes takes years to, to mature. The um, Nina took 10 years to write Big Fat Surprise. Sure. Yeah. And, yeah, I um, understand. Uh, because you've got to get it right. Yes. You do. And uh, there's a, so much information out there, and a lot of it's been hidden now. A lot of Belinda's stuff is um, being taken off the internet and, um, even going back and searching that stuff uh, is now disappearing off the archives, archival websites. So they, those industries are pulling up the ladder behind them. Yeah. And mm. so, but everything's screenshotted, indexed, archived, and don't bother right. killing us because the hard drives are in a couple of different places around Australia and one and overseas so um because you know, her work really is the proof behind what's going on and this is you know this is malfeasance at the at the deepest and darkest level yeah it's a battle of good and evil isn't it well we we think so but you know it's not about taking down a religion as belinda we, she was deeply upset by it and she used to be a sunday school teacher and it, it really hurt her to come out and, and find this stuff because it's not not about bagging anyone out. It's just the fact that religious ideology shouldn't be corporatized to the point of overtaking everyone else's choice. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's it's there is a bit of truth. I think where Jackie's pitching, you know, the the binary levels of it. You know, this is just about whether it's about truth or power and control, but. At, you know, there's a motivation to this, you know, or motivation to control. But as you said, it's corporatization. So there's greed. So there's all the seven deadly sins in this, you know. We can sort of think about it in those metaphorical terms. But yeah. it's, at the end but of the it, day, it, it's truth. What's the truth? That's all we, yeah, all we should ever chase. Yeah. The truth according to who, though, Louise? Correct, but this is this is you know where you know when we get back to Foucault, you know knowledge is power. But then we go, you know, we can sort of take a sociological perspective, and you know this is about Marx, this is about the economy. So fundamentally, you know, there's some core things here about controlling knowledge, power. Power is economy. So we're talking about systems and regulating society. And as you said, you know, the business, religion, the business of the big business of religion is about controlling society. Mm -hmm. Fundamentally, yeah. whether whatever religion you want to label it. Absolutely. You know, it's about the control and regulation of society, of the masses. And, but my observation is that society and the masses actually want to be regulated. Yeah, because I don't have to think. Um, yeah. No, unless you're an anarchist, you know, well, purely at the front, you know. But they don't have to think. They don't have to worry about it. They just follow along. 
a bit like Zoe said, sheep. Everybody's a sheep. No, we're not all sheeples. No, not everybody, but a lot of people are. They don't want to have to think and look look up. There, there are we've more... got rebels and we've got questioners. You know, it's the obligers, which was you know, most people are obliging and upholding, you know, get back to those typologies, unless you're a rebel or a questioner. And that's where the scientific inquiry method is, you know, I'm going to make a statement of a hypothesis, prove me wrong, prove that this is not true. I'm with you. I think there are more sheep than shepherds, though. Absolutely. I agree. And I'm not but, disagreeing with you. Yeah, I, I think, uh, but, and I didn't, we didn't end up, we just ended up doing what we thought was the right thing. And I know that the benefits for my patients on a day-to-day basis are amazing. And the benefits of taking this message to a wider population through the internet, podcasts and whatever, is a good thing. And again, nobody, people don't have, I'm not forcing anyone to eat one mm. way or another. I'm just no. saying, here's the biochemistry behind the way you're eating at the moment. Here's the biochemistry of an evolutionary diet. You can do with that whatever you want. Yeah. And for those people that are on a health journey, the time might be right for them. Um, it, and it may need, need to be repeated. It may be that they come to that revelation in a year or five years' time. Um, we've certainly had this conversation with our kids and they've adopted it in different time frames. They're all adults and in different extents. And so that, that's fine. But on the whole, everyone in our family is living a healthier life as a result of the fuel they're putting in their bodies. Mm. And that's cool because we got it wrong based on the best information that we had at that point. I've been a doctor for 30, oh, I've worked it out. <laughs> uh, yeah, nearly 40 years. And, the, and I ate terribly, but I was eating according to the guidelines yeah. in retrospect. So this is the information we have today. I'm still learning about low-carb, keto, glucagon, insulin. I'm still learning about all that stuff. And I don't think it's, the further you go down the rabbit hole, there's still more to learn. And um, there was a discussion about that on email this morning. And I think it's a really healthy spot to be where there's still discussion occurring, questioning, and, you know, few terse words were flying around. I go, no, that's good. I'd rather see that to see how we can continue to evolve it because anybody thinks they've got it completely worked out is wrong. So therefore, I'm coming back to my statement about fresh local season or maybe I'm wrong about it all. No, I think it's still I, a healthy... I think you're mostly right. I think you're most... I, 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 think, I, I think you're mostly I think I'm right. mostly right. Yeah. But I'm also and married and be. Belinda will tell me occasionally that I'm not right. <laughs> but that's our job and she's doing a mostly right job too. So that's why you are such a wonderful, the Fekis are such a wonderful package. We got two for one, um, you know, in terms of being able to have the privilege of speaking to Belinda last year and, and, and you today, Gary. It's been absolutely fantastic 
we could talk for hours, but we know that it's obviously, you know, it's after late 7.30 out your time. If there's 7.30 my time and Jackie's 8.30 now, 8.30 a.m. In the morning. 11 hours. So, but before we go and wrap this up, so Gary, where can people contact you, your social media contacts? Um, Where can people find you? Look, I'm most active on Twitter at this point in time. I find it very quick. I find a lot of research gets sent to me, which is better than uh, any other forum I've ever been on. So um, Twitter, um, look up Gary Fetke, but I'm out under the handle of Fructose. No, uh, I'm still on Facebook. Um, Belinda's took over the Facebook page. It's called Belinda Fetke, No Fructose. Um, but uh, she broke her ankle last year and had um, and we've got grandchildren running around, so she hasn't been too active on that. You'll find both, most of our talks on YouTube nowadays, particularly through Low Carb Down Under. Uh, I'm on Instagram, but to be fair, I actually don't under, understand Instagram. <laughs> I'm not good at putting up a lot of pictures of good food, um, apart from when I'm doing something a bit crazy. Uh, and um, But most of all, look, um, if you're after us, you know, um, and uh, Twitter's probably the easiest spot to find us at this point in time. So, Gary, can you give us three top tips for our listeners? Keep questioning. Keep learning. That one or two. Yeah, well, you, you keep decide. No, no, keep I think uh, keep questioning. And, and, and as a result, you'll keep learning. Uh, my father's philosophy, he never finished high school, but he, always, he never goes to bed without learning something every day. Mm. And he's well into his late 80s now. So that's, that's a good thing. Never stop learning. Uh, and uh, we'll put it all together. When you have the opportunity, if you're fortunate enough in life to have the opportunity, and a lot of people don't have this, eat fresh, local, seasonal, whole food based on your culture and environment, avoiding added sugar and processed food. And here in Tasmania, we're incredibly privileged. We're surrounded by temperate climate, arable land, plentiful rainfall, um, good soil, and socioeconomically have the ability to access that part of it in our own vegetable garden and certainly a lot locally. So if you have the privilege to have access to that, please don't waste it because Mm. the vast majority of the people on the planet, A, don't have the information to take this pathway. B, don't have the access and the availability. Yeah. So that's a long-winded answer, but I think it. I, I came to realise how privileged I am to be in a place on the planet where I can actually access it. Yeah. And I think, you know, Tasmania produce for, for the listeners, you know, those scallops, the dairy, oh, my gosh, you know, these are some of the things I've been reacquainting myself in the, in the week since being back. It's just, you know, you have a newfound appreciation for yeah, certainly food quality. The range, I think I miss the range of particularly proteins, um, you know, and dairy since since being back. So, um, yeah, it's it certainly is take, you take for granted sometimes your food in food supply, the, the food supply chains. And, um, yeah, it gives you a fresh perspective. But thank you so much for your time today. It's been wonderful catching up uh, with you and, um 
We wish you all the best for that golf handicap for 2022, as well as your <laughs> other endeavours, but mostly the golf handicap. The, uh, that's just the selfish one. Um, the altruistic one continues. I don't, we don't, yeah, of course. We actually don't have an end point. People no. keep saying, what, what's your end point? We, say, we don't have one. No. That's the pursuit of truth and that sort of um, – I was having a chat to someone on the phone the other day and he – and we actually care so much that we don't care anymore. And uh, I've ticked everything on my bucket list. So I'm actually okay. It makes me, you can't hurt us. You know, the system's tried hurting us several times. Yeah. Um, but um, we've, that's, that's a whole game. We're just going to keep staying in it whilst we want to stay in it. Absolutely. You and, keep you and Belinda, keep up, yeah, keep up the good fight. No, thank you. Thank you both. Great to catch up with you both. Thank you. Great. Jackie, it was really lovely to hear another Australian voice on the podcast. You say that as if we don't have any Australians on, but we do have quite a few. <laughs> oh, well, it's nice to gang up on you for a change. And I think, you know, having um, such a vocal, you know, a, a vocal advocate for obviously, you know, lifestyle and, you know, really making change. And the listeners will know that. Gary's story resonates with, with, you know, those health practitioners that have had a lived experience, which then obviously, you know, informs their practice. I think, you know, for me, the, the, when I hear these stories of health practitioners with their own health journeys, that, you know, makes them really have that privileged position of walking in the shoes of the patient. And in yep. this case, you know, you know, he was lucky enough to sort of have that light bulb moment and transform not only himself, but, you know, those around him. So I think that that's where I find, um, yeah, some really great, great, you know, energy. Inspiration. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. He is an inspiration. And I thought it was really humbling that he, you know, he said, I've apologised to my patients and I've apologised to my children because, of course, we only ever do what we think is the best thing to do with the knowledge we have at that time. And, but for some people, they don't just don't seem to be able to go back and say, I was wrong, I got it wrong. But he did say, I got it wrong, I got it very wrong. And he was humble enough to apologise to his patients. And just think of all the thing, you know, all the people that would have continued down that road if he hadn't found out about this correct you know those all those patients that wouldn't have been helped but not only for his patients but for himself because obviously he was saying that you know about the cake the chocolate cake and with his sweet tooth and that sort of thing so for himself you know his own health journey you know and obviously eating the types of food that he was addicted to then you know, where would that have led him as well? So it's not only bringing the chocolate cake home to the family to apologise for, but being able to say to yourself, well, you know, uh, you know, the harms that he was doing to, to his own health, his own future yeah. self as well. So I think that yeah. there's um, that apology resonates also with, you know, Dr. David Unwin, you know, that that's, yeah, it's really, as you said, humbling for people who we place a lot of trust in, um, our healthcare professionals, to sort of admit that they, you know, 
they were ignorant, you know, not through any fault of their own, but it's just, as you said, they only knew what they knew. Yeah, it's definitely not their fault. And it, in a way, should we be blaming the people that are teaching our doctors? And it gets back to, as you said, the, the curriculum, because obviously there is a, um, a way that the curriculum is shaped by, again, the, the accrediting bodies. So there is a, a synergy between what is being taught is being accredited, you know, which was responsible for obviously, you know, silencing and sanctioning um, his license to practice. So, yeah. which again, and as Bel- yeah, as Belinda said, it, absolutely, as she's pointed, put, pulled out that the people that are teaching have a, an agenda of their own, which doesn't necessarily align with public health or our health. Well, our yeah, our health values, and I think you know, let, let's not put all the put the put the throw the baby out with the bathwater because there's a little little you know maybe a shining light over no, here. But I'm not saying that everybody should follow the same diet, but even if they adopted a a guideline, maybe we don't need the guidelines because we no. did very well in the millions of years up until we had the guidelines. Um, but maybe we should be have some options for people to try if they want guidelines then give three or four different guidelines and you might try this and you might try that and you might try the other and each person can try what what is best for them and rather than making everybody one size fits all right all around the world and as gary said not only did he say eat seasonally local um but he also said that it needs to be culturally appropriate so I think we need to bear that in mind and not make people eat the same the world over. So what I'm hearing is, you know, this one best fits model. And I think really for me, as I'm teaching a summer class on evidence-based practice, there has to be a criticality. You know, we have to be critical. We have to be able to read what is the best research. We have to be able to then do that in a context you know, with the clinician and the patient. And I think these four parts of, you know, evidence-based practice really needs to be what is the best evidence. And as we know from Zoe Hartcombe, those dietary guidelines aren't the best evidence. They're not in context. That's just, as you said, that one best fits model. You know, we're dealing with, um, you know, what are the clinicians in applying this practice, but the fourth part is our voice. You know, it's the client, it's the patient. What do we want? We want, as you said, options. Where are the options? So when we go back to our practitioner and we say, well, what is the evidence? But they give us this one best fits model. It's not, as you said, it's not working. But we need to be equally as the patient or the, the client, we need to be critical consumers of the evidence. And again, we don't know what we don't know, but we need to have those options of asking our practitioners, well, you know, you know, well, what are my, what are my choices? What, are, what is the range? What does the evidence say? So, um, yeah. yeah, we need to be critical consumers of the evidence. And also taking what Belinda does is, um, looking in and see who, who has a vested interest in this paper. Who you know? Where is it being funded? Who's Correct. funding it? Correct. We know that that the all the food processing that all the food processed foods yep. in the world are controlled by ten companies, um, and 
who and they are the ones that are funding it the um, pharmaceuticals mm-hmm. are yep. doing a lot of the funding so what's in their interest to put forward and what's being hidden and most of us are not going to read the whole paper so and, and it's fair enough but when we're critical consumers we can read it for that bias you know and that's really where when we're reading that you know and that will appear um, as a declaration or conflict of interest at the bottom of the paper so you can skim all the paper and there will be that but there's also you know it's those conflicts of interest should be declared in in a publication there is also um you know the publication biases when they do particular reviews there's ways of reading for how you know the review or the paper the trial has been conducted you know how they've selected their participants you know have they skewed those results you know there's things that you can read in more detail if you want to um and take my summer class on (laughs) evidence-based practice um you know, for maybe maybe I could sneak into your just class. sneak into my class. Um, <laughs> so, and it's really interesting getting the students involved. Like these are paramedic students, and trying to get them engaged to read the research for and asking these questions. And there's very clear sort of frameworks for for asking the questions. So, you don't have to invent the questions that are already being done, but you have to be able to apply. But anyway, we're off we're off topic. Getting back to Gary, so. As a critical consumer, so as him and Belinda are, you know, they have absolutely, you know, in their advocacy asked these questions and they've uncovered, as Belinda has done, and you can hear that um, in a previous episode, so of, you know, where those interests lay. But where Gary's advocacy moving forward is is really wonderful to sort of see what is going to be happening in 2022 for him. So we wish him all the best. Yeah, we'll have to get him back once he's on track and let us know what what he's doing and how he's getting on. That's great. Where can we get more um, information for the show notes for this episode? So the show notes are at fabulouslyketo.com forward slash podcast forward slash 074. Thanks, Jackie. Thank you. Thank you for joining me. Good to be back. It would be great if you could support us through Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash fabulously keto and you can choose the monthly amount you wish. Can you recommend a guest we can interview? If you can, click on the link in the show notes to send us your recommendation. Would you like to join our Facebook group? Search for Fabulously Keto on Facebook. Our Facebook page is called Fabulously Keto and you can follow us there. Or you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Fabulously Keto. Or follow us on Instagram, Fabulously Keto 1. Did you enjoy the show? Let us know you listened by tagging us in your Insta story or Instagram post using the handle Fabulously Keto 1 and the hashtag tfkp all the links are on the website and in the show notes if you haven't subscribed to the podcast click the subscribe button reviews help us to be found and reach new listeners please leave a review of our show on your preferred podcast listening platform we appreciate you taking the time and read them all
Disclaimer. The information in this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Nothing in this podcast can be taken as advice. Whether our guests are doctors, healthcare professionals or not, they're only sharing their own opinions and stories and this does not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. It's always best to seek professional medical advice should you wish to make any changes to your current medication or treatments. Also speak to your own doctor if you have any concerns about your health or you wish to make lifestyle changes, especially if you're taking medication.